Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. I want to begin this morning by talking about blessings and curses. Um, to start with blessings, often when we think about blessings in today's culture, I think we think about good luck or fortune, and I think this can be summed up in the internet phenomenon that is hashtag blessed. Um, I searched for hashtag blessed this week on Instagram, and it was a pretty interesting just display. It was like beautifully toned bodies, nice cars, weird inspirational quasi-Christian quotes. Uh, My favorite one was this guy in front of a Mercedes Benz, and the caption was, bought my first Benz at 24, hashtag blessed. When it comes to curses, we don't really use curse terminology a lot, maybe except for when we talk about profanity. Um, But you need to know that Christians take blessings and and curses very, very seriously. And they're much more than just uh, material good fortune and buying a Benz at 24 or saying a bad word. So consider with me, if you will, Pirates of the Caribbean and the Curse of the Black Pearl, uh, which is where you knew I was going. Uh, Some of you may have seen that movie. If you've not, there's basically some pirates. They steal gold that they're not supposed to steal. And when they do, a curse comes on them, the curse of the black pearl. And the curse means that they fall into this state where they're not truly alive, but they're not really dead either. They eat, but they can't taste. They sleep, but they can't rest. It's miserable. And no matter how successful their pirating is, no matter how much fun they have, no no matter how much material wealth they get, at the end of the day, they're still under the curse. And so their whole life is trying to break free from the curse. Okay, woe to the one who bases any theological arguments off of Pirates of the Caribbean. However, that gets us a little bit closer to what the Bible teaches about what a curse actually is. Likewise, a proper, robust understanding of blessing is the exact opposite of that. It's being in a state where you have had divine favor and good invoked over you so that no matter what happens, in the end, you come out on top. Consider with me, if you will, the story of Joseph, which is from the Bible. Joseph is blessed. Sure, he's brutally betrayed by his brothers and he's left for dead. Sure, he's sold into slavery. Sure, he's falsely accused. Then he's thrown into prison. Then he's betrayed by a friend in prison. So this man's life looks nothing like hashtag blessed. So this is not the prosperity gospel. But what does blessing over Joseph's life mean? It means that regardless of everything that is thrown at him, he rises like a cork under champagne. At the end of the day, he's the ruler over Egypt and everyone around him bows down to him. Christians take blessings and curses very, very seriously. And we need to deepen our understanding of them because they are some of the biggest players in the book of Genesis, which we're currently studying right now. So God creates a world that is very good in chapters one and two of Genesis. We studied that last summer. As a result of the fall in Genesis chapter three, the world comes under the curse of sin and death. The curse of sin is our bondage to sin, which is the brokenness in the world the waywardness of our hearts, the fracturing of justice, society, families, our own lives. And the curse of death is that no matter what, 
we're all going to end up six feet under, which is what brings the writer of the Ecclesiastes to say that life is vanity. It's just a breath. The curse is real. We cannot break that curse. Do we not all, whether we are religious or not, groan under the curse of the brokenness of our world? And has anyone ever been able to fix that or break free from that? The answer is no. And all of us weep at a coffin. The curse is real. And it's only after you take the curse extremely, extremely seriously that you realize how crazy Genesis 12 is. And I know some of you are visiting, but we've been studying through Genesis. In Genesis 12, in the context of all of this curse, God appears to a random guy named Abraham and he reveals his plan for redemption of the world. And what is that? He basically says to Abraham, I am going to bless you and I'm gonna bless your family so that through you, the whole world will be blessed. In other words, where evil has been invoked over you, I'm gonna reverse it. I'm going to speak divine favor over you so that through you, I can reverse the curse everywhere. And this is the central drama of the Old Testament. The curse wreaking havoc in the world while God's blessing is slowly passed from generation to generation through God's people. And the central struggle for the characters in the Old Testament is whether they choose to walk in the blessing or remain under the curse. So for example, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, are the Pentateuch, and that's what our church is studying over the next five years. And the whole first five books of the Bible climax at the end of Deuteronomy with a massive list of blessings and curses. And Moses says this. This is like one of his parting shot, drop the mic moments. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life. That's how the books of Moses end. So in the central drama of the Old Testament, we see this struggle with blessing and curse, okay? And nowhere is it more prevalent and I think intense and beautiful and dramatic than in the life of Jacob, who we are gonna study for the next four weeks. Jacob's life is defined by his striving relationship with God's blessing. He deceives his father to get the blessing in this story. This is kind of the beginning of his story and how does his story end? Who does he wrestle to get a, a blessing? God, okay? Jacob's story ends with him literally like man-on-man -man Olympic wrestling God to get a blessing. So this is a man who is literally begging, stealing, and borrowing to get the blessing. And it is this man who embodies this, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get God's blessing spirit that the people of God get their name because Jacob's name is turned to Israel, which means he strives with God. So not only are blessings and curses a really big deal, how you relate to them and how you get them is extremely important. And this should lead you to ask two questions. One, is there a blessing for me? If this thing is so significant, if this is a divine favor that's being invoked over me, 
Is there something that I can get? And number two, how do I get it? And I believe, believe it or not, that the answers lie in this really weird story in Genesis chapter 27. So I want us to look at this story and I want us to ask two questions. What is the blessing? And number two, how does Jacob get it? And then we're gonna see how the Bible might apply that to our life. Sound good? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do not go through the motions in church. We never come under your word and expect not to be influenced and touched. And we do not take lightly the blessing of God. Lord, we do not want to underestimate the curse of sin and death. We do not want to underestimate this moment as a time that both of them are set before us and we get to choose. So Lord, do something this morning through your word. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, what can we say about this blessing in Genesis chapter 27? First, it's the father's blessing. This is a classic example of a father gathering his children at his death to bless them. Jacob is a part of this story here at the end of Genesis. It's going to end up with him and all his 12 sons, and he's going to go through and bless them. So this is a type of patriarchal blessing. It's kind of a combination of a a prayer for the future, a prophecy about their future, and also uh, a calling on God to actually do something in their future. It's kind of a combination of all those three. So the story begins with Isaac realizing he's really old, and he wants to bless his son. Second thing we can say about this blessing in Genesis 27 is it's for the firstborn. It's intended for the firstborn. Esau is the firstborn. Isaac clearly only intends to bless Esau in this passage. If you remember from last week, Matthew preached on Jacob and Esau and how there was this rift in the family. Um, And it's a really sad rift. Rebecca loves Jacob, but Isaac really loves Esau because he loves his tasty delicacies. Um, Isaac and Esau are both in on this weird, carnal, unhealthy attachment to food uh, that blurs their spiritual sensitivity. So Esau loses his birthright kind of because he's blinded by his, like, I just want to eat. And the same thing's kind of going on for Isaac in this passage. It's really interesting. So Isaac basically says, Esau, my precious, hairy, meat-loving son, Go out and make me some of that food which I love. Isaac says the phrase, the food which I love, that's like at least three times in this passage he says it. So he loves this food, Esau loves the food, they're both in on it together, and like that's how he wants to end his life, okay? The third thing we can say about this blessing, it is also the covenantal blessing. It's not just a, it's bigger than the father and the son. Um, In other words, the blessing that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, Abraham gives to Isaac, and it is now what Isaac is about to pass on. So maybe in your family, there's a really precious heirloom. In my wife's family, there's a famous portrait by a really good painter of one of their famous ancestors. You can ask her about it later. But that gets passed from generation to generation, not to every person, because you can't cut up a painting. One person gets it, and they will pass it on to the next generation. That's what's happening here. It's, a, it's more precious than any painting or heirloom we could ever have because this is the promise. It's the promise of divine favor and shalom from the earth, from all the nations, from your family. Um, If you have your Genesis, look at verse 28 really quick. Just look at it. 
Let's just read it so we, get, we have an understanding of what we're talking about here. Verse 28, may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. Can you imagine if all of those things actually came true? Like if there was something that could happen in your life where that just happened, that would be a desirable thing to have spoken over you, right? And did you notice how it's opposed to the curse in this passage? This is something that you kind of often go over, but Rebecca and Jacob, who are scheming to get this blessing, Jacob kind of worries like, Mom, if this goes south, we could end up with a curse. And she basically says, let the curse be on me, which is a very, very intense thing for Mom to say, okay? So it's an anti-curse. It's curse-reversing. It's curse-repellent. And this leads us to the fourth fourth thing, which is that it actually does something. It actually accomplishes something. The blessing is not well-wishing. As much as I love them, this is not an Irish blessing at the end of a long night at a pub, okay? It actually performs what it says. In liturgical theology, I'm not going to say this right, sorry, Max, there's a concept called ex opere operato. How'd I do? It's good? Okay. It's Latin, and it it means essentially it works by itself. If you have questions about it, go ask Max afterwards because he's great at Latin. Ex opere operato, it means it works by itself. It's the idea that some things are bigger than the person giving them, that they are effective regardless of whether who the person is or whether they change their mind afterward or whatever, and we think about this when it comes to the sacraments, right? It's bigger than the minister. But we see that here. Once Isaac gives the blessing, he can't go back on it. That's one of the things that we do not get about this story. It's like, that's totally fine. Just bless Esau. But he's like, I can't. The blessing is bigger than him. He can't revoke it. He can't transfer it. He can't edit it. And what's more, no one else can counteract it. No one else could come down and curse over the blessing. And the most beautiful picture we have of this in the Old Testament is in Numbers when the people of God are wandering and a pagan king hires a guy named Balaam to pronounce a curse over the people of Israel. And this dude literally comes up to curse the people of Israel and he can't. He stops. And he goes back and he's like, I can't do it. God's already blessed these people like, Curses don't work on them anymore because they have the blessing. The blessing of God is curse reversing and curse repelling. So do you see how precious this is? You can understand why this would be a big deal for Esau growing up his whole life knowing someday I'm going to get this. You can also understand why Rebecca, who loves Jacob, is listening outside the tent and she's hearing the exchange and she wants in on it. Jacob is not the puppet master in this story. It's all mom. She's moving and shaking. This is a huge deal. Huge deal. This is not hashtag blessed, okay? All of that leads us to our second main question. How in the world does Jacob get it if it's intended for the firstborn? And the answer is he pulls the old switcheroo. Isaac is basically blind 
And so Rebecca's plan is to have Jacob come in acting like Esau, disguised as Esau, so that Jacob will get the blessing in his place. And there are three parts to Rebecca's master plan. The first is he get, she gets Jacob to bring in the delicious, tasty food which Isaac so loves, okay? He's blinded by his appetite, and so she's like, we're going to give him what he wants. And he gets two goats. Y'all ever eaten two goats? How about that as your last meal before you die? I want two goats. Second, Jacob uses his brother's name. He comes in and Isaac asks, who are you? And he responds in verse 19, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me, now sit up, eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. Isaac knows the name, he hears Esau, he responds to it, even though he kind of senses something is up because he's like, you kind of sound like Jacob, but I guess he used Esau's name, you know? His doubts are overcome, though, by the third tactic, which is that Jacob essentially dresses up like Esau. Jacob wears Esau, his finest garments, because Esau's a really, really hairy guy. I love, Jacob's a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Uh, Esau's a really hairy guy, so Jacob gets the skins of goats, and he puts them on his neck and on his hands. So Isaac puts out his hands, even though he can't see, even though it sounds like Jacob, and he feels his firstborn. It even says later in verse 27, he brings him close and he smells him. He smells Esau. It's a very sensory passage. And so Isaac, eating the meal, which he loves, and hearing the name and feeling the clothes and the skin of his firstborn is tricked. And he gives the blessing to Jacob. And in one of the more heart-wrenching scenes in the Old Testament, Esau comes back in, and uh, he realizes what's happened. Isaac has realized what happened, and the people I was reading on this this week, the Hebrew is going to, it's being pulled to its greatest lengths to show how tragic this was for Esau and Isaac. Isaac starts trembling violently, very violently, it says, and Esau screams, think like like tragic moan scream, because he realized this just went to, to Jacob, and Isaac says, I can't. He says, don't you have another blessing? And his response is basically, no. The old switcheroo worked. What do you do with this passage? When you read it, it's hard to know what to think of it or how to apply it. What does the narrator think about it? You know, like, who's good? Is, are we supposed to imitate Jacob? Um, is Esau getting, I mean, it's hard to know. The Genesis narrator does not moralize this in a Sunday school way for us. Now, here's the point, kids. Do this and you'll, you know, whatever. And as much as we might try to squeeze that out, it's hard because it's just not in Genesis 27. What do we think about this? Do we like it? Are we supposed to like it? Do we imitate it? We're not sure. Even though we don't know what to do with it, uh, we certainly can relate to it. Who can relate to a family that has rifts? favorites that cause a lot of disastrous happening, divides in husband and wife maybe. Um, We can relate to the longing to receive a father's blessing. Yet while all these things may be discussed and pondered, and I think they should be, in this story we are giving a picture of something much deeper and much more significant uh, than a dysfunctional family. 
as I heard one of our Angli- Anglican bishops, uh, Bishop Todd Atkinson, who really has influenced my reading of this passage, he says that this is a story rich with images of the gospel. I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids at night, and I love, and uh, so sorry for like a year of a lot of Chronicles of Narnia references, but that's literally what I'm reading every single night. But in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, some of you may be familiar, the witch knows about the deep magic, which basically are these laws that are set in stone that govern the world, and yet Aslan knows about the deeper magic, which the witch does not know about. If I can use that terminology, in this story, we have a picture of the old switcheroo, which is deeply significant because it's how Jacob becomes Israel who becomes the people of God in the Old Testament, and yet there is a deep switcheroo, a deeper switcheroo, which was set in motion by God before the foundation of the world. And if I turn this into a book, that would be my title, The Deep Switcheroo. It's like, what? What am I talking about? Isaac, eagerly longing to bless his firstborn, is a pale, weak shadow of the heart of our Heavenly Father, our Creator, who, whose deep desire is to bless his children with a blessing that is curse-reversing. Amen? Curse-repellent. With a blessing that is ex opere operato. It cannot be transferred. It cannot be lost. It cannot be counteracted with a blessing that brings with it all the favor and treasure of heaven. The story of Genesis is God starting to work that blessing through a dysfunctional family, and that is what we see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs. But God would continue to bless the people of Abraham. That blessing would get passed down throughout the Old Testament until, as the Bible says, at just the right time, Jesus was born of Mary, who was a Jew, from the tribe of Judah. And as a Jew, he was an inheritor of the Genesis 12 Abrahamic blessing. By birthright, it was his. But even more, even much more, he was God's only eternally begotten son and therefore was entitled by family right, by firstborn divine right to the full blessing of the father. And we hear that when Jesus would say stuff like this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Or, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. Or, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Or, the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he does. I was recently at Chick-fil-A and waiting in line. I was reading the story of the Kathy family on like a plaque. Um... And it was just showing how the, the founder, Truett Cathy, had two sons who had sons who now run the business. And I just thought, man, what a family to be born into. Apparently, the estate of the Cathy's is like $14 billion. How about that from chicken? And I was thinking, what if I was on a plane and I was sitting next to somebody that in my conversation, I come to find out, you're a Cathy. Oh, wow, you're going to inherit one day the Chick-fil-A fortune. Do you realize what Jesus is saying when he's saying all these things? Imagine being a disciple and thinking, wait a second, hearing what he just said. My father has given all things in heaven and earth into my hands. Thinking, wait, this man's father 
is the creator of the world, and one day this guy is going to inherit everything. As the son, his father's blessing was his. As the Messiah, the covenantal blessing was his. If there was a document for the entire cosmos, all things seen and unseen, in the estate, lawyers, I don't know how this works, but I'm, I'm certain somewhere there says, like, who, who gets the inheritance? There's only one name on that document, and it's Jesus. But here's the gospel. You guys want to hear the gospel? Here's the good news. Jesus came not just to receive his father's blessing. He came to open that firstborn blessing up to the world, to you and to me. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his what? Blessing flow as far as the curse is found. Father Eric preached on Ephesians 1. If you were here, what was it, like three or four weeks ago, he was here. Let me just read what he preached on again. This is where he had you say the word every, I think. I'm going to have you do that in a second, so get ready. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Say the word every. every. I, I'm going to start doing that. That's so good. Every single part of the covenantal, curse-reversing, curse-repelling blessing the Father has opened up to us. Every single part of Christ's firstborn blessing, all the intimacy he shared with the Father, all the access to the estate of the Father, all the treasures of heaven and earth, the Father has opened up to us. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Why? Why would he do something like that? Ephesians tells us, listen to this, in love, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in his beloved. He did it because he loves us. He did it because he loves you. Can you believe the heart of God? That he would want to share his firstborn's blessing with people like you and me who are the reason we're under the curse in the first place. Everybody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now how do we get it? How do we get it? How do we go from being under the curse of sin and death to receiving a blessing that is not ours by right to receive? The answer is the old switcheroo. Or I should say the deep switcheroo. Turn with me to your Galatians text. That Lynn read. I hope this makes sense in a, or is brought to life in a much richer way than when you heard it the first time. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the what? Of who? Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And unless you're in a Messianic Jew here, which I know we have some, 
Most people like me are goyim, or Gentiles. We don't even have the right to the covenantal blessing so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If Isaac's heart to bless his son is a pale imitation of the father's heart, the old switcheroo in Genesis 27 is a pale imitation of what happens in the gospel. On the cross, Jesus assumes and embodies the curse of sin and death. He becomes the curse. And he suffers under it in a more profound way than you and I can ever imagine. And then by his resurrection, he breaks it. He tramples on it. He cracks it in half. And just as he took on our curse, he lets us take on his blessing. Like Galatians says, just as Jacob invoked Esau's name, Jesus gives us his name to use. We pray in his name. We gather in his name. We boldly approach the throne of grace in his name. Just as Jacob puts on Esau to come before Isaac, so we, as the New Testament teaches us to, put on Christ, do we not? We wear him. His robes of righteousness, the garments of the firstborn, the blessed. Just as Jacob wore the skins of an animal who was slain, we wear the lamb who was slain. We put him on. We clothe ourselves in his sacrifice. But the gospel is not just a reflection of Genesis 27. It speaks a better word than Genesis 27 because in the gospel, the father is not fooled. Amen? It was his intention. He wanted it to happen. And in the gospel, the firstborn, our brother, is not frustrated. It was his intention. He wanted it to happen. They go together, the father and the son, they get together to will this to happen. Imagine Isaac and Esau getting together to say, we love Jacob. We love him so much. What can we do to, Esau's saying, is there any way I can open myself so that Jacob can have my blessing? And Isaac is thinking, yeah, I wanna, I wanna bless him. I mean, imagine what the father and the son are doing together in order to open up their blessing to you. Isn't that amazing? So when we come before the father, the father hears the name of his son on our lips. He feels him on us when he touches us. He smells the fragrance of Christ on us when we get close to him and he withholds nothing. Two quick application points. There's like so much to apply from this. Um, so keep on thinking about this and apply it yourself. But here's two that come up for me. Do not underestimate the power of God's blessing. And this goes for both Christians and non-Christians. If you have never taken Jesus' name on your lips, you have never worn Jesus. You've never received the opening up of the blessing of God that only comes through the cross and through what the firstborn has done. Today is the day. There is no other way to break the curse of sin and death. Apart from putting on Christ, you will remain under the curse. Behold, life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. 
as the apostles put it in Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we, we must be saved. For those of you who have already taken that step, and you would call yourself a Christian, and you're following Jesus, I want to challenge you to, to get in touch with the inheritance that is yours in Christ and to allow the blessing of God and like what these passages are talking about to take on a life that is bigger than you. For instance, the end of every one of our services is a blessing. I don't know if you know that, but that's a really significant liturgical moment in our churches. And the giving of that blessing is one of the very, very few things in our church that only a priest or a bishop can do. And it's true for all the great tradition churches. And for those of us who come with a more evangelical or maybe progressive background, that might seem a little bit weird and exclusive. But the reason is that we see this blessing that the church has and proclaims in church as the same covenantal blessing which was passed down to Jesus and given to the church. So there's a connection between Genesis 12, what's happening between Isaac and Jacob, and then goes to Jesus, then given to the apostles, and that blessing has been apostolically passed down through the generations in the laying on of hands, and it is spoken to this day by the spiritual fathers in our church. We take it that seriously. So at the end of the service, when the church is pronouncing its blessing, don't just think about lunch. I know it's tempting. Don't just be like, okay, we're getting out of here. Man, don't let, don't let that be thrown away. We're playing with live rounds here when we're talking about blessings. Amen? And just like there's a priest and then the, everyone's a priest, you too are a vehicle for the blessing of God in the world. You got to make that connection, right? If Israel was a, a blessed people who were meant to unleash that blessing over the curse, if God's blessing is going as far as the curse is found, well, that's happening through you. That's happening through us. So you are armed with God's blessing. You embody it, just as Jesus embodied the curse, so that you could embody the blessing wherever you're going. And that is our job. We are blessed people to bless. Amen? Don't take that lightly. You know how to get somebody into the blessing right of the firstborn. There's an opening for everybody in this city. Wow. Wow. Lastly, be bold in the use of Jesus' name. Be bold when you put on Christ. When you pray, man, this is just studying this and reading this, and I mean, it's revolutionized the way I pray. You take on Jesus' name. Think of the old switcheroo when you're praying. You're, you're putting on Jesus to come before the Father. You do not need to fear that you are not worthy of that blessing. You're not. You don't need to do a bunch of good stuff in order for God to bless you. That's legalism. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done everything you need to. He's given you his name. He's given you his righteousness. And you take it on and you boldly come before the Father and use that name and use that sacrifice. Amen? So some of you wear a cross. I've worn a cross my whole life because I love it. Um, but it's just, it's meant so much more to me this week. And I found when I'm praying and in the morning, I, put, I feel like I'm putting on Jesus today. And it's so effective, just my confidence in prayer. Be bold. Jesus wants you to use his name. He wants you to use his name. So doing things in the name of Jesus is not Christianese. It lies at the center of the gospel. So let me finish with this. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.